Our guest now is the leader of the National Party, Christopher Luxon, who, on current polling, could lead the next government. However, current polls suggest he may have to do deals with more than one party. Mr Luxon is relatively new to politics, a one-term MP and a leader of the National Party for nearly two years. He's a former chief executive of Air New Zealand. He's in the Auckland studio. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome. Great to be with you, Catherine. Thank you for having us. Your first uh, question is an opportunity for you to pitch in 90 seconds or so, please. Your case to be in government and to be Prime Minister. Well, look, I think New Zealand's the best country in the world and I think we can be so much better than we are. I think there's no reason why we can't become one of the the great leading small advanced economies and countries of the world. Uh, I want to see a country that gets its mojo back, a much more confident, positive, ambitious New Zealand. But for that to be possible, we've actually got to build out a stronger economy and I think that's what uh, this election is boiling down to because it's through a stronger economy we get better infrastructure and better public services like health and education. So uh, I want us to restore the promise of New Zealand, which is that if you're prepared to work hard in the best country on earth, you can get ahead and do well for yourself. Up to now, however, the, the election has been described by you and by your party members as about the cost of living. Yet to make the books add up, you're making changes to the proposed indexation of benefits and superannuation that will see $2 billion less paid to those New Zealanders over four years than they would get under Labour. How is that helping those New Zealanders with the cost well, of living? Look, all we're doing there on the ben- on the benefit payments is just doing what has historically happened pre-2019, which is linking benefits actually to inflation and to the cost of living. That's the best way that we can actually protect purchasing power of beneficiaries. So that we actually we know that the dollar that they spend is actually going to buy what it's supposed to buy. Uh, and I think that's a, a, an entirely appropriate way of doing it to make sure that actually the costs and the cost of living is um, actually protected. What's more important, Catherine, though, is then how do we get people from welfare into work? And... Yeah, frankly, what we've seen with this government, I think, is a terrible legacy in that regard. How on earth, in in a time of low unemployment, lots of worker shortages, do you put 60,000 more people on unemployment benefits? So So, the the bottom line is, though, some of the lowest income New Zealanders will get less in order for middle-income New Zealanders to get more under your plan? No, they'll actually get uh, increases to their benefits yeah. each and every but, year but based relative, off inflation and the cost of living. So, so no, I disagree. Talk- I disagree. I think you know, they're going to have increases each and every year so that actually their costs two, two um, billion are collectively less than under the current indexation to wages. That, that's fine. That's a choice. Well, that's it's assuming... Just- but just, Catherine, let's be really clear what's happened in the last few years. Wages have only gone up 4%. Inflation's gone up over 6 sometimes 7 So everyone's going backwards, and that's why the better metric is, in fact, the cost of living. uh, Treasury's projections currently uh, are that that would amount to two bill over four years. Well, the same same Treasury projections didn't forecast uh, uh, an economic slowdown like we saw, inflation hanging around like it uh, has. That's that's all we've got to work with at the moment, and we're going to do more on that. But you mentioned wanting to see more people off income support and into work. So. Uh, that's a reason you've given for introducing some welfare sanctions for those who don't um, turn yeah, up when absolutely. they're supposed to turn up. Are yep. you also committing, and will you commit today, to fully funding drugs rehabilitation services and adult literacy services, two of the biggest barriers for people moving from welfare to work? Will you fully fund those well, services? Well, we want to actually make sure that we are doing everything we can to support people on unemployment benefit, for example, because they've got two obligations. And the first is if you're able to work tomorrow, you should be actually out there applying, looking for jobs. 
jobs, that's your job. And if you're not ready to work, but you're deemed by the government to be able to do so in the foreseeable future, in the next two years, then we should be making sure we're getting you all the support that you can, whether that's literacy, numeracy, addiction, trauma, whatever it is uh, that sets you up for success to be able to secure that job interview and to secure a new job. Well, that's those exactly services would be delighted doing. to hear that. Are you pledging to fully fund them? Um, I'm not sure that we're pledging to fully fund them, but what I'm saying is we will do everything we can to okay. support people, but they have an obligation and a responsibility then to do their job and to hold their end up. And that's why we've introduced the traffic light system saying, look, you know, the vast majority of people uh, will be in green. Uh, they meet their obligations. We're only asking them to do one thing, which is to do everything they can to get a job. The taxpayer is supporting them in a difficult time as they transition from one job to hopefully another. And if for those that actually need more time to help, we expect you to be in courses and training and taking up the opportunities. Will you alter or delay National's tax cuts package under any circumstances? Uh, no, because the tax plan has actually been fully funded, as we've talked about before, because uh, you know we know we did this independently of the fiscal plan. And frankly, uh, you know, working New Zealanders, low and middle income New Zealanders, actually deserve a tax break if and tax relief. If the policy to bring foreign buyers back into the market has to go as a result of coalition negotiations, can you still afford your tax package? Uh, absolutely, but it won't be because essentially we've already built a very uh, huge amount of buffer into our tax plan. In our first year, for example, we raised $500 million more than what we actually spend. And as you've seen in our fiscal plan, we've got $10 billion worth yep. of unallocated operating expenditure. That and may get allocated pretty quickly, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So if that foreign buyer's, ban, uh, foreign buyers return to the market goes out of the policy... Uh, well, I don't think it will do because I think it's a very conservative set of assumptions uh, and I'm very confident in our numbers. What I'm not you're, confident, you're confident on is that we, GST we is going to get through. We haven't found a single to... independent economist who, didn't, who wasn't contracted to work from you who agrees with you. I, I think disagree. The, I, think, I, think, I think the best we got was plausible but optimistic and the rest were far more dismissive. Yeah, I think when we go through the assumptions, I'm very confident, having had them independently evaluated by economists, that they're good. And likewise, I just say to you, there is not a single economist who believes anyone's getting GST or fruit and vegetables and it's going through to the consumer. Given the fight against inflation, the $10 billion deficit in the government's books next year, is it not mm. prudent to at least delay the introduction or to phase in the tax cuts, income support and return of tax deductibility for landlords? No, because the landlord piece is actually, this government has been has driven rents up $180 a week. They were advised by officials, do not extend the bright line, do not unwind uh, interest deductibility, uh, because uh, that will only raise up costs for landlords, it leads to higher rents and makes renters worse off. And that is exactly what has happened. Okay. And so we need so a functioning private rental market. Final question on this, because your finance minister and you have alluded to a mini-budget before Christmas. What would be the purpose of that mini-budget? Um, well, that will be a chance for us to make sure that we can generate savings uh, as we plan to um, out of the public service. Um, we, As we've talked before and said publicly, we want a 6.5% saving to come out of our core agencies. Uh, that is entirely appropriate. There has been an 80% growth in government spending, and yet we have not seen anything for Will it over this, you com over this do government. do anything else in that mini-budget? Because right now, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, people are questioning how all these things to add up. Tax relief on the one hand, no cuts to frontline services on the other hand. The government's books apparently are a disaster and the opening of the books for the December update may show things uh, tracking worse. This is your position on things. Will that mini-budget consider more drastic action were the defood to warrant it? 
We'll have a look at it. All we're saying is that we're in volatile economic times. Uh, it's appropriate that once we've been in government for a little bit that we actually get a chance to look at properly what's going on. You know, I've been pretty disappointed, actually, that this government hasn't delivered a single you know, track that it's been on over the last six years financially or fiscally. Uh, you know, uh, Grant Robertson and Chris Eckmans have presided over a huge amount of government spending uh, and they've run up a huge amount of government debt. And on, so, on that note, you've, you've land-based labour over its spending, up 70, 80% you're saying today since it became it government. 80%. Billion dollars a week more on average now, you say. Correct. But your own fiscal plan barely deviates from labour's. So you keep well, up that level first... of spending. So which is it? Is it too much spending? Is it the right amount? <laughs> no, there's only two numbers New Zealanders listening need to understand. The government has had a perverse 80% increase in government spending. Yeah, but you're only cutting yep. 300 a million a year yep. off the operation uh, budget. Me, so, yep. so why not more well, if it's such an overspend? Well, the first thing I'd say Such is, poor spending, why not let, more? Let's be clear, this government isn't going to deliver its fiscal plan. It never no, has No, no, but I'm asking you about yours so just, and why no, yours isn't different. No, but, but when you start comparing our plan versus their plan, there is no way in hell that they are actually going to deliver that plan. Absolutely no way. Because they haven't been able to do it. They're addicted to spending. They end up taxing more. They end up borrowing more. The borrowing has gone from $5 billion to $100 billion. So why that is, is your plan need to tinkering with $300 million a year on average off the operating budget, which is a pittance? If that overspend is so inappropriate, why have you changed it so little? Well, because our first few years, there are a lot of limitations. We've had a government that's actually put a bunch of fiscal cliffs in place. You know, didn't fund Farm Act, didn't fund school lunches, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, and then you've also seen a government that's actually been raiding future years of budget. So the limitations in the first couple of years are actually quite difficult. What we're saying is, look, we will be able to get to surplus at the same time. It'll be slightly higher. Uh, but um, we need to have much more disciplined spending. We need to have lower tax and we need to have lower levels of debt. Uh, and we'll start to get ourselves into that track over that four-year period. But you know, the reality here, Catherine, is that we need to make sure that each and every year there is discipline management of our books and our spending and that we are getting a return for that investment yep. for the taxpayer and delivering outcomes. And I Treasury think itself th- that, that's the sad thing about this government is you know, how on earth do you spend $5 billion more on education, hire 1,400 more public servants and deliver worse attendance and academic results? Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about the, the, the consequences actually of uh, what the best projections are or what the official projections are because Treasury is warned already that the space in there for any new operating spending. Well, that's in, because in, in Grant Robertson always in, overspends it, right? In the May budget, mm. in the May budget, would do nothing more than keep up with business as usual. Okay, there is inflation, there is population growth. We're back up to close to a hundred thousand, which is near record levels uh, immigration growth at the moment, and that trimming of the operating budget is coming at a time where the costs of those services are going to warn, uh, are going to uh, go up. Will you commit to increases in the health budget that keep pace with inflation and immigration growth, population growth. Yeah, so what, what the numbers that the government has connected to around the future load that's going to come onto healthcare, we're saying, yep, we've built that into our fiscal plan as well. As I've said, we want to continue to s- increase spending on health and education, uh, but we actually do not want to be spending 200 people in Health New Zealand, for example, in the communications department. I want those as frontline nurses. So we are going to recycle the back office. The uh, we are going to make sure that we actually make cuts in savings the there. The key word is will that's 
funding in health keep up with inflation and population growth? Will you commit to that? Yes, and the track that the government laid down, uh, which is a huge investment because there is a big cost and post coming, uh, is something that we've supported and built into our so plan as well. So a commitment to both but inflation and population But I'm not inflation adjusting the back office of health or how education. Much, how much of it's the back office? It's a $26 billion health budget. How much of that could be considered back office? How much of the $14 billion that goes on hospital and specialist appropriation, how much of the $9 billion that goes on primary and community health, like GPs and the likes? How much well, of that's going to back office? Yeah, if I, if I strip out and we've said, look, health, education, police, defence, we get that. There's some core agencies that we're saying we want to be spending more on. Uh, we want to move the money, yes, from the back to the front, but in total we want to be spending more money on. But there are other agencies, and you know, here's a good example. MB is spending an extra $500 million than what it did. It's hired 2,500 more people. Across most of our, our government, um, the 24, I think it is, core agencies, there's been a 62% increase in spending. Uh, and a lot of that is in the back office and the running okay. of those agencies so and departments. So, so that is off. unacceptable. I mean, it is unacceptable to be sitting there going, we have 200 communication yeah. staff sitting in Health New Zealand. Well, why on earth do we do that? Uh, the, we want 200 more nurses. We want the money at the front line, the, not the in the bureaucracy. The point is, 600 million is coming off those savings you're projecting. And that is I'm nothing. I'm telling you, it's a $26 yeah. billion dollar health budget. And yeah. this is at a time your health spokesman is promising to rebuild the health workforce. How will you we hold will. on to and attract doctors, nurses and other medical professionals? Will yeah, there well, be more? pay rises, will there be better conditions to compete with Australia? Well, what we're going to do is make sure that we increase health spending, as we've said, each and every year. But the other part that we have to face up to is we need a strong economy, and that's why we've got to get this economy so, sorted so and pause. growing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just pause, because we've already said Treasury says that new spending will go just on business as usual. If you Correct. are going to we want to attract yep. doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals for what you describe as a health workforce crisis, yes. will you improve paying conditions for those key groups to compete well, we will, but what I'm trying to say to you is that you have to acknowledge that Australia is 30% wealthier than New Zealand per capita, and as a result, it has more money to invest in its healthcare system. So I know it's that New Zealand is... It's an immediate crisis, though, you say. No, it is. It's lovely, though, isn't it? It's lovely that actually we'd love to have the same standard of healthcare as, New, as Australia, but the reality is we can't because we actually aren't as wealthy okay. as Australia. So let's just be really clear about that. But what we can do is we should be growing our homegrown workforce. You know, we've got a policy to say we've got 2,000 nurses and midwives we train every year. Let's actually retain those people in New Zealand if they bond their services to health in New Zealand for five years. We'll give them twenty-two and a half thousand off their student loan. Um, you know, we've got four thousand six hundred nurses short in this country. That surely that's something we've got to be doing. Uh, on doctors, we need a third medical school because actually uh, we can open up a lot more yep. places that are Auckland and Otago and open up a third medical school for regional New Zealand. A- again, it's that immediate crisis that the health workforce talks about. Sure, that, that but we're actually that's, that's why okay. it's so disappointing that a government after six years has done so poorly and with an absolute majority failed to do anything in the last what three years. What is the future of the health restructuring currently underway under a national-led government? What do you say to that sector listening in? Well, look, we want to have a look at it. We're very conscious when we talk to the sector, and both Shane Reddy and I have done that, is that they are quite burnt out. Uh, they are incredibly overwhelmed, and just endless restructuring for restructuring's sake doesn't make... You know, we've got to be really intentional and purposeful about actually understanding uh, what, what, that, what that's going to create and what that drives. Um, so we'll have a good look at that once we're in government, but we're very conscious of we want delivery, we want outcomes, and we want to support a, a, an overwhelmed and stressed what out What is workforce. the future of the Māori Health Authority, please? Uh, that will be gone. Uh, we will scrap that. Uh, because we don't believe in the co-governance of public services. Uh, we think that we can have one coherent healthcare system or education system or criminal justice system or whatever it is. Uh, we deliver those services to do all you, New Zealanders, uh, but we can deploy, uh, certainly through community organisations, those services in a different way. Do you accept there's an inequality in health and particularly as it affects Māori and Pacifica? 
Uh, absolutely. There's worse outcomes for Māori uh, across New Zealand on basically every single metric, whether it's housing, education, incomes, uh, health. And so we've got to work harder on those social d- So d- who's the weedo? You've lost a Māori health authority that may have been focused on that, oh, well, may let's have be been clear. focused on the funding, no, the efficacy, the measuring. No, I disagree. It's a different approach. And what has not, you know, as you've seen, a year into a, a rather damning report to say uh, very poor delivery, poor focus, unclear about what it's actually doing. And the Māori Health Authority, by its own admission, saying won't actually see an improved outcome for Māori for five years. And so, so will you, that, we can't wait that. We've had six years of a government not improving health outcomes. Where will outcomes. you build in a focus on that inequity in your system, therefore? Well, we want to deploy through Māori health um, uh, providers, for example, uh, to be able to actually get into local communities uh, to work with Hapu and Iwi on the ground and actually power them up to actually do that delivery work. And you will devolve a certain amount of uh, independence to them? You will fund them to do it their way? Correct, because we, we believe that's the best way. That's the difference between the Labour Party and the National Party. We believe in something called localism and devolution, which is it's best deployed locally. This government believes in mindless <laughs> Centralisation okay. and control and bureaucracy, and that's just so not it's, great. It's an, it's, an, yeah, it's an element of partnership, isn't it, uh, to do it that well, way? It is partnership. I mean, that's exactly what. So partnership, we, okay, but not a word that has governance in it. Okay, you want to create? Well, no, because because actually, you want one governance structure of your public services, but you can have multiple ways in which you can deliver those services or provide those services, right? But you want the coherence of one public service system that provides national public uh, goods uh, and, and that services would be a across system the country. Maori would say has failed it for decades. But let's move on. You want to crack down on crime. So how much extra spending on police? Um, well, what we've announced is that we'll have another 300 police. We want them actually deployed in the hot spots across our cities and towns where we've got some major challenges. But what we've got to do is actually back the police. And at the moment, government's soft on crime, crime's out of control, people don't feel safe. And so uh, part of what we've got to do is you know, back the police, tackle have, have gangs, police, serious consequences, and make sure we get you, stronger sentences. Have you talked to the police or their representatives, police association, whatever, about the realities of trying to police a gang patch in public places, a gang patch ban? Yeah, we've, and we've also seen what's happened in Western Australia and Queensland under Labour premiers and those states and they've done a brilliant job of actually uh, putting it back making gang life pretty tough. You might need those 300 officers just to keep on it all day, mightn't you? Well, i just say to you, Catherine, uh, it turns out that there's been problems with gangs and other other jurisdictions around the world. We've taken their laws, a lot of what they've been that's been working incredibly well, but we're not tolerating gang uh, gang gang life here in New Zealand uh, because they want all the rights of being New Zealanders but they're not prepared to take the responsibilities. That doesn't work. Christopher Luxon's our guest. He is the leader of the National Party. 24 minutes past 10, you're listening to to nine to noon on RNZ National. What is your position on the current social welfare entitlements, benefit entitlements, apart from the change to indexing that we've already discussed? Are you committed to maintaining current benefit levels and entitlements? Well, as we said, we want to see benefit levels increasing each and every year. But more importantly, I want people off welfare and into work. If you but are no deemed... changes. Sorry, just I've got a lot to push through. No yep. changes to what those benefit levels and entitlements are. Uh, no, at this point we're just saying, look, we want to make sure we're getting people off welfare into work. I think it's, I think it's actually perverse and 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 really wrong that you've got sixty thousand more people on unemployment at a time of worker shortages, at a time of low unemployment. National no, Super. we don't want anyone sitting there languishing on welfare. It doesn't work. National Super, will you commit to no change to the retirement age, universality, and super entitlements while you are prime minister? 
Well, actually, superannuitants will do well. We're going to keep the winter energy payment. We think that's a good program, and we think that's appropriate to keep it for superannuitants. Uh, they'll also do well because under our tax plan, their, their entitlements are based off after average tax income. So a couple would get an extra $26 a fortnight, a single uh, superannuitant okay, $17 a fortnight. Okay, but are you prepared to say there'll be no change to the retirement age, universality, no, and superannuitants? You won't so, commit so to uni- Sorry, universality will remain, but what we have said is that we, on 20, in 2044, we will move the retirement age and progressively over a couple of years from 20, from 65 to 67. 2044, so 20 years away. Plenty uh, of notice, so happen, people have lots of happen, time. Should it happen soon? Well, it's important that we continue to afford a universal superannuation scheme, and that's what we need to do. But also every decade, just remember, Catherine, people are living another year and a half longer as well. So in many so countries around the world already at 67. considering bringing that forward perhaps taking it to a future election. Uh, our policy's been at 2044. People should have advance notice and lots of time to adjust, and it uh, certainly doesn't affect any current superannuitants, uh, but it will affect those going forward. Okay. Immigration's now running, as we said, at near record levels. Yet again, housing and infrastructure are not keeping up with population growth at this speed. Is the country getting back into that same cycle of high immigration, not enough housing and services, and ultimately down the track, potentially house price inflation? What well, is the ideal level of net immigration? Well, no no politician or no political leader is going to give you a number per se. But well, is 100,000 too many? Well, it is a, actually a blip at the moment is what I'd say to you because essentially the country was shut down like no other on earth uh, and there has been a real bubble of actually uh, massive worker shortages and as a result this is a lot of catch-up that's actually happening and taking place. When I looked at recent monthly numbers, even just versus what was three months ago, it's starting to slow up because the economy is slowing up but ultimately that's determined by the market and by by the labour market in particular. So, you know, we actually think um, we've got to make sure immigration is always very strongly linked to our economic agenda and where we have worker shortages. What um, climate change policy? National's essentially raiding the climate fund, to be blunt, and you're not alone. Revenue raised by the ETS currently being spent on decarbonisation initiatives is going to help pay for your tax package. Mm-hmm. Is this not classic short-termism, if not short-sightedness? How do you justify it? No, I disagree completely. Look, this government has made so many interventions on the ETS scheme that they've failed to get any auctions away whatsoever. They had to go to court for it, found to be mucking around, hasn't given yeah, the scheme. This, this is the fund that's got, that's got money in it, money that was yeah, used, yeah. for example, to cut New Zealand Steel's emissions by nearly yeah, half. what a terrible idea that was, right? of the country's yeah, emissions. what a rubbish idea. I mean, you're seriously telling me Blue Scope Industries, a steel company in the US, Australia and New Zealand, yeah, but has the so technology. We, we, we pay for the emissions anyway. No, no. <laughs> But, we, we pay but, for them whether – this is paying to cut them at least. Yeah, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Catherine, but I don't buy corporate welfare. Having been a CEO, you do the right thing and you actually set your business up for the future well. You don't need when you make $2.1 billion a profit uh, to you get $140 million. Anyway, it was done. The point is your fund is going but on terrible, tax cuts. That's terrible, but isn't that unacceptable, though? Yeah, it's no, 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 but this is about you now. You want to be Prime Minister. You want Correct. to be the government. You're raiding that fund, which no. could be used – for various climate initiatives, or Mr Lux, more importantly perhaps, could help pay for the now multi-billion dollar bill New Zealand has signed up for by 2030 on its current failing trajectory to cut emissions and meet its international commitments. That estimate is anywhere from $3 billion, optimistically to $24 billion. Mm. But that fund has been used for your tax cuts. Well, let's be clear, Treasury actually, in the way that they've distinguished that liability, and I heard Grant Robertson talk to this in a recent Q&A interview, uh, has said that that is not a liability that we actually have on the books and, and need to deal with. It's not with. on the books, but no, no, you're no, saying but we just won't pay it. No, 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 I'm not saying that. We're going we're gonna to work incredibly hard, and every government has to be able to do that to bend our emissions profile down and to do it in a much what quicker, faster way. What is a single policy that National has that goes 
anywhere near meeting the scale of commitments that we have made so in a first, binding way. Yep, so the first thing you've got to do is actually make sure that we get an ETS scheme that is actually not mucked around with because that is going to do the heavy lifting of New Zealand and bend our emissions curve uh, big time. So polluters should pay for it, the prices should continue to go up uh, and we actually think put a, you know, a cap on emissions and get that scheme working right. It hasn't been working because the government's been intervening with it because it doesn't like the price going higher, which it should do because that changes the behaviour that, get, that polluters deal with. And then you've got to say, what can governments uniquely do? And what we can do is we can provide research and development investments, we can provide network effects, uh, and we can also change regulatory settings. So, for example, you know, just outside of Wellington, where you are, is a, a fantastic wind farm. It took eight years to consent it, two years to build it, and it powers up 100,000 homes in the greater Wellington region, right? And the point is, well, we know, it's the same, you know wind farm technology is not rocket science. It can be consented in a year, built in two, and we get the benefit okay. of that in a much quicker way. As it stands now, when we I look are at, not going to make that 2030 target. Now, will you commit to those nationally determined targets that New Zealand has signed up to that leaves us with a bill somewhere between 3 and $24 billion. Or will Well, you again, I haven't the, seen Treasury saying that explicitly. I haven't seen Treasury saying well, that. So what I'm saying to you is my, my government and future governments that come after us as well have to work to get to net zero 2050. We have to do everything we can this to deliver. This is 2030. We've committed no, no, to this, Mr Luxon. No, we have. No, I know that. I'm, I'm saying we will be committing, we're committing to net zero 2050. So we does that mean you DC may revisit those commitments goals. that we, are made for we're being, we're being committed. We're being committed to the emissions um, reductions budgets. The, the, we're, we're aligned uh, on the ends in this country and we have to be because this is a New Zealand issue and a global okay, issue, not just you, a party issue. thank you, but could issue. you clarify, will you consider Revisiting those 2030 commitments? No, we have said that we want to meet those commitments and we want to meet our net zero 2050 as well as the NDC 2030. If the goals. ETS does the work, one of the reasons the government intervened back in December, it says, was because of the uh, cost, the, what it would have done to the price of petrol and the cost of living crisis. Now, if the ETS is. And that's allowed, why we're giving it back to New Zealanders in tax relief. So will you tolerate higher petrol prices because you're not going to interfere with the ETS? Will you tolerate significantly higher petrol prices for New Zealanders? Well, I'm not going to speculate as to what the price will become or be, but if you're going to have a cap on emissions, you have to have an ETS scheme that functions. And at the moment, New Zealand doesn't have one that's functioning because the government keeps interfering with it and doesn't give people certainty. And so we're going to do that. And we're saying as a principle, we think that if Kiwis are going to pay slightly more for it, they should get that money back as as a climate dividend actually in tax relief. And so that's not an unreasonable place to be. But what you don't do is you don't actually maintain an Auckland regional fuel tax at 11.5 cents a litre. What you don't do is actually add on increased excise fuel tax over a period of time with inflation at 6%. That's why we won't increase it over our term. And that's the way in which you support New Zealanders that are having to pay. Right. I mean, the, the, they the will perverse... face higher petrol charges and they will but, but face Catherine, higher charges that flow through less, into less, their Less bills. than under a national government than under a Labour government. Okay. Infrastructure. In Auckland, sinkhole uh, means sewage is spewing into the Waitamata right now, closing beaches. Queenstown, the so-called jewel in the tourism crown, is on a boil water notice for weeks, yep. if not months. The capital's water infrastructure is so bad, 40% leaks out of the pipes. Fast-growing yep. cities and towns are at the point in some instances where they can't hook up any new more builds to the system. You've just announced you're canning uh, the government's three waters slash affordable water reforms. What, oh, what a load of rubbish. Uh, what, I mean, no, I mean, what I mean, they are a load of rubbish, what the government has proposed. So I mean, what will they, you do instead? 
So what we've done, we announced it back in February this year called Local Water Done Well. We're going to basically repeal the three waters legislation. The government's put these 10 co-governed mega entities together, more bureaucracy, more centralisation, send those assets back to local uh, council ownership and control. And then we're going to make sure that we have obviously water quality standards. We support Tamara Arawai, which is the water regulator. But we'll also have a, a water infrastructure regulator under the Commerce Commission to make sure that pricing, but more importantly, that councils are investing consistently. Where, where does the assets. money come? For well, the, that's anything the point, from $100 billion to $140 yep. billion, we've yep. been told this is going to cost over 30 years. Yep. Where does and it come from? I tell from? you, the rubbish response from the government. No, no, not their a, response. No, where no, does no, it come no, from no, under your government? Well, that's, the, that's exactly the point I'm about to get to, which is that you need to be able to give councils access to long-term debt funding to make consistent, regular investments in that who do, water who infrastructure. Do they borrow off? Who do they borrow off, by the way? Because many of them are near their, uh, near their um, borrowing limits. And that's, and that's so why many of them... So who do they borrow off? So when you sit down with councils, as we have done now for three years, talking about how we make this work, if I go, say, for the Hawke's Bay, for example, where there are four district councils, one regional district council, they want to come together, take all their water, three water assets, put them into a council-controlled organisation, so they have local control and influence over it, and by virtue of that, that means that they can actually go borrow independently from their council balance sheet and actually get proper long-term debt funding And that place. will total up to something like 100 to 140 bill across the country over the next 30 years, you see that as being feasible? Um, absolutely, because that's the problem that we've had with infrastructure funding in New Zealand. What has happened is the asset breaks. We then scramble around to look for cash reserves to then fix a problem after the asset's actually run yeah, out of its useful life. 100 years we've been life. doing that, or, or 50 no, years back anyway. And that's the bigger <laughs> okay. conversation point, Catherine, is that we have managed infrastructure abysmally badly over decades in this country. So people want to know what not, your plan is. Thank you, look, you've outlined it. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Can we so, also speak about where capital will come from, uh, yep. if not borrowing, for some of the realities that may hit? What is your position on significant increasing foreign uh, uh, investment from China? Well, look, we've got, we've got major challenges with respect to infrastructure, major deficits across the piece, whether it's roading, a whole range of things. Uh, and what we've got to do, which is what other modern, advanced, small economies all around the world do, uh, which is that you can use private funding and private capital to be able to do that. If you want State Highway 29 built... Yeah, we've just been through that with you know a, a, a motorway north of um, Auckland and a motorway north of Wellington. My question was specifically yep. about China, and my reason for that is that given global geopolitics, there has been a warning to New Zealand ex Exporters about the level of exposure to China as an export market. Now, is it wise to now significantly increase a dependence on foreign investment? What is your position? I, I don't mind what it is. Just tell me. Yeah, I am about to tell you. Um, so, no, we need to be able to access foreign direct investment into New Zealand. From China specifically is the no, question. No, well, no, I, I think that's a rather uh, – we can get to China. Let's, let's have that conversation. But I want the bigger point to be made first, which is that foreign direct investment coupled with actually if you think about KiwiSaver funds and super funds and all that money that sits in domestic pools of capital here in New Zealand can actually be applied to delivering our infrastructure here in New Zealand. I think that's really important. It's the only way we're going to get it done faster, quicker. Uh, and yes, we may have toll roads. And yes, we may have to uh, use targeted rates and a whole bunch of different technolo- uh, you know, financing and funding mechanisms. But actually, if you seriously want infrastructure built in this country, you have to be able to entertain the funding and financing of it being done differently from domestic pools of capital as well as foreign pools of and capital. And specifically your issue of being wary of an overexposure to China. Is that on your radar? Well, again, in terms of any decision that's going to be made about overseas funding, It's going to be done through a national infrastructure agency, which is the old Crown Infrastructure Partners beefed up. And then you'll still have the Overseas Investment Office with sensitive lands, national security tests. All of those things would need to be satisfied. A couple of coalition questions. Would you go into government at any price? Is there anything that would cause you to say, 
if that's a bottom line, then go and form a government with Labour. Um, what I know is that a government with Labour, Greens and Te Party no, 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 is a disaster That's the coalition of chaos. Uh, yep. One of your, one of your uh, in fact, your preferred coalition partner, ACT, has actually gone near the chaos word uh, in a roundabout way with uh, a recent um, social media release and was questioned specifically about it and referred, in fact, to a situation that could result in chaos. Uh, we are presuming he's referring to a three-way coalition with New Zealand First. My question to you is... And that is not is, my preference, right? I do not want to work with New preference. Zealand First. I do not want to work uh, with New Zealand First, and that's why I've been saying very clearly to New Zealanders is that I trust them, but they need to have, we need to have quite an adult conversation about party votes. And for a lot of your folk that are listening that might be lifelong Labour supporters or undecided voters, actually, uh, they know that this hasn't been good. They know they're worse off after six years. They know it's not going to be better in another three years. How and so will you we want them to party vote national. How would you manage such strong personalities and experienced political operators as David Seymour and Winston Peters? You've been in Parliament for three years, never been in government, <laughs> never been in cabinet. A lot of people are asking this. Well, let me be How really clear. I've led in large... Led large organisations and large exec teams with big personalities in most of my career and outside life. Uh, I have also led and rebuilt a national party that was pretty dysfunctional uh, two years ago and is uh, now a high-performance team. And I just say to you, Chris Hipkins cannot manage his own cabinet or caucus, so God knows how he's going to handle co-leaders from Te Pāti Māori and the Greens as well. Would you work with any other party from the last parliament, by the way, in order to avoid having to work with New Zealand, please? Well, look, I mean, Te Pāti Māori uh, is a party that we've worked with in the past, but clearly it's a very different party today. Um, it's not uh, about localism, devolution, pragmatic outcomes. It's much more a separatist sort of agenda. Uh, the Greens, when you look around the world, centre-right governments have been formed in co- coalition with um, you know, Green parties. I look at Germany, for example. But the reality is they've ruled us out and they seem to be less focused on the environment and more on, on social issues. Are you ruling out either of those other parties if it's an Oh, we already have. We already have okay. because the Greens don't want to work with I'm us. Asking- Let's just drop the semantics. Let's just say, sorry, the day after the election, everything changes. Let's just tell people what they already know. Are you open to the possibility of working with another party were it to allow you to form a government uh, alternatively to a three-way with New Zealand First? Um, I've laid up our option. Party vote national, first and foremost. Beyond (laughs) that... That's not a no. No, no, no. No no strong preference to work with ACT. I think that would be a very constructive government. I think that would would be in the best interest of New Zealand. That was not a no. And Um, I do not want to work with New Zealand first, but I'll pick up the phone if it avoids Labour to Party Māori and the Greens for another three years. My question was, is there anything that would cause you to say, if that's a bottom line, go form a government with Labour? No, no. This is a government that has not been able to get anything done. It's been a disaster for New Zealand. Sorry? Prime Minister off the table for a coalition party. Finance Minister off the table. Anything else? Uh, I said I'll be Prime Minister and Nicola Willis will be Finance Minister. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Christopher Luxon is the leader of the National Party.